We got a lot of kids in here. The other week at our fellowship event that we had in the, the fellowship hall across the, the hallway there, Tom Collins came up to me. He said, listen to that noise. You hear that noise? I said, what are you talking about? He said, listen to all the kids. He said, that's a good sign. And it is, man. It's a great sign. It's a sign of health. It's a beautiful thing to see the future generation present with us. Um, hey, before I forget, um, just so you are aware in the coming weeks, we have coffee back. Um, there's a lot of things that don't get, aren't able to be announced from the pulpit, but we take coffee seriously, I guess. So I'm going to let you know that coffee is available uh, from this week forward. It's back uh, like we used to have it. Um, again, I do want to give a shout out to the moms. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for uh, thank you for being moms. I know now as a as a dad with a uh, a wife who has young children. You know, I, I think about my own parents and just. You know, when you're a kid, you, you have no idea the things that they're wrestling through and going through. You have no idea that they have no idea what they're doing, right? Um, but now as a parent, you're like, gosh, I have so much more respect for my parents, uh, you know, than I, than I did. Um, I was reading a story about a guy named Harvey Goodwin this week, and he was a, a bishop in England. But he made a comment about his mother, and his mom passed away, actually, when he was six years old. But he was with, with a bunch of people, and he said, you know... Out of all my years of experience that I've gained, out of all the degrees that I have, um, out of all the teachers I've sat under, my mother is still the most impactful person on my life, all before the age of seven years old. Moms, I hope that you see the impact that you can have on your children, right? Even in those moments of, I don't know, fussiness, right? When the, when the socks aren't fitting on their feet just right and, and the dress isn't going on or whatever, understand that you have significant impact, generational impact. And so moms, I pray you feel honored, encouraged today. We are going to continue in our movement series, um, and we find ourselves in the book of Ruth, which is a great book for Mother's Day weekend, right? Um, moms and, and women in general, I hope you're encouraged by this story. You can be, begin turning there. I hope, you, uh, I hope your faith is strengthened as we study Ruth. But also understand that we didn't just have to force Ruth into the narrative because it's Mother's Day weekend, right? Like, Ruth is, is very much a critical point in the story of redemption. So it's great that it is Mother's Day weekend, and we can look at a, a female character from the Bible, but, but please, don't under, please don't think we had, to, we had to squeeze it in and, and make it work. No, Ruth actually plays a pivotal role in the grand plan of God's redemptive story. It's a small book, but it has a, a massive impact. Sometimes we think of Ruth as a side story, right? In, the, in the God's big story, and then there's little stories like Ruth. When we think of the big grand plan, we think of people like Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. We think of Moses, people we've talked about already. We think of uh, Joshua. We think of David. We think of the major prophets. But Ruth, Ruth gets skipped sometimes. Or if it, if it is talked about, it's not often talked about within the context of God's grand plan of redemption. But it is so central to God's plan of redemption. A lot of times, or excuse me, uh, these past few weeks as we've gone through our movement series, as we've looked to, to see where God's undeniable hand is at work in the story, we've seen God do undeniable things, right? Massive things, miraculous things, supernatural things things. We've seen without doubt that God's hand is at work in this story. We've observed it, right? I mean, he, he divided a sea, right? He's hovering over his people as a, a pillar of fire. Like, those are undeniable things. Those are miracles. But then you get to Ruth. You don't see any of that. 
There is no supernatural phenomenon. There is no miracle. There is no extraordinary activity. It's just normal. Just normal. Remember last week when Kelly Burdick shared her testimony and she talked about how she struggled to find contentment in the normalcy of life, in the mundane? I think that connects to a lot of us. You see, Ruth shows us that even when you can't see the miracles, God's still moving. Right? That's the point. Ruth shows us that even when God is hidden, he's not absent. Ruth shows us that he is at work in every single sequence and aspect of your life. Every day-to-day activity. You see, most of, most of us live our lives in Ruth, not Exodus. We don't, part, we don't walk through the Red Sea on a daily basis. We live our lives out in a sequence of events, a sequence of rhythms and patterns that can seem mundane, and we will be discouraged if we don't see God's presence and involvement within the day-to-day of his people. And Ruth shows us that. His fingerprints are all over this story. If you went to my house tonight, and if you didn't know who lived there, if you didn't know who I was, you could walk up to my house and know that children live in this home. Why? Because my front door is glass, and about this high up, there's little handprints, little fingerprints all over it. Why don't I wash them off? Why would I? They'll come back in two hours, right? So there they are. And you would look at that door and say, children live in this home. Without ever seeing the evidence of it, or excuse me, seeing the children, you could conclude that children are present in this home. Same thing with Ruth. You look at it, and God is only mentioned by the author once in the beginning, once at the end. But through the, through the entire narrative, his, his fingerprints cover it. So I want to look at this book. Um, I want to look at all four chapters. We're going to kind of zoom through it. But I want to start with asking the question, what's the point? Like, why is Ruth in the Bible? If you've never read the story, uh, and I'm sitting here telling you that it is very important in God's story, you got to know what the point is. All right, so we're going to go to the end of Ruth, look at why it's even in the Bible. What is the point of it? So that when we go back and we look at the plan, we look at the story, we see that all these events aren't random. They're not luck of the draw. It's God at work in every single sequence. This is true of life too, right? If you don't know your purpose, you will go through life thinking everything's random and meaningless. But if you know the point of your life, if you know why you exist, then you will begin to see God's hand at work every step of the way in your life. All right? So I want to get the purpose of Ruth so that when we do see this story, you're sitting there saying, yeah, yeah, God is, he's putting these pieces together. It's, he's moving this thing forward. All right? So go to chapter 4, verse 13. Verse 13 of chapter 4. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. All right, spoiler alert. Sorry about it. Um, the guy gets the girl, or the girl gets the guy. It says, he went into her, and, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a, a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and began, uh, he became, and became his nurse, excuse me. So now you're like, okay, cool, this sounds positive. It sounds like good things are happening, but like, what does that have to do with anything? What is the point? Well, look at verse 17. It says, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, father of Jesse, father of David. That's the point. 
That's the point. God is showing us that he is continuing this messianic line. He is continuing his promise of a savior through Ruth. Through this Moabite widow, this immigrant, this foreigner, she will be written into the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of God. So when you go to Matthew 1 and you see there's just a few women mentioned in that genealogy, all of whom you'd look at in scripture and say, that is the last person that would ever have anything to do with God's plan. Those are the people God chooses. You find Ruth's name, this Moabite widow. The point of Ruth is to show us that even in our story, even in what seems mundane or even in what seems random, God is accomplishing his plan, right? He is using you uh, to accomplish his purpose. Ruth didn't always see that purpose, but she did move in faith. And I want us to see that. So what's the point? Well, the point is that through Ruth would come her great-grandson, David. Through David would come the Messiah. Ruth, very critical in the plan of redemption. So let's go back to the beginning now. Now that you know the point, you know the ending, you know where the story is going, you know what God is accomplishing, so let's start off at the beginning. I've labeled each chapter um, in my outline. This is just the way that I, this is not necessarily, I wasn't even planning on sharing this, but chapter one, I wrote pain. All right? Chapter 1, I wrote pain. Look at verse 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Chilean died, so that the woman, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the story opens with tragedy. The story opens, and we are just dropped into a moment of, of brokenness and hardship, right? And you'll notice that it says this was in the time of the judges, which a a spiritually dark time in Israel's history. On top of that, there's a famine, right? And then for Naomi, on top of all that, she's lost her husband and her two sons. This is devastating. So Naomi, at this point, might be thinking, how could anything good come from this? This is the worst moment of my life. What in the world could God do with this, right? Again, God sets the stage with the most helpless, most hopeless situations. Why? So that when he does bring about the Messiah, you look back and you say, that was God who accomplished that. Right? This is not the story of man. Don't make the Bible about you. This is the story of God. And he sets the stage in devastation. He sets it in tragedy. So Naomi was probably wondering at this point, how do I pick myself up? How do I move forward? Why would God let this happen? God, where are you in this devastation? So she has a decision to make at this point. No husband. She's a widow in a foreign land. Her sons have died. What does she do? Well, she decides, I'll go back home. I'll go back to Bethlehem. So she tells her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, she says, you stay here. There's really no point in you coming with me. And they say, no, 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 we want to we wanna go with you. She says, no, life as a widow in Bethlehem, for you, not going to be very easy. You really should stay here. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, you see Orpah's response, right? It says, Orpah kissed her goodbye, went back to her, her land, and Ruth, what does it say? 
Ruth clung to her. There are certain decisions in our lives. There are certain moments that change everything. I mean, change everything for you. In a moment, in a decision that you make, the trajectory of your life can change from that second forward. Isn't that crazy? I remember where I was, and, and I remember the room vividly when the Lord said, put your whole yes on the table for foster care. I just remember that was a very clear moment, and I knew when I put my yes on the table, my life, my family's life, my children, my, my parents, my circles, their lives were going to be impacted, and everything from that day forward changed. The Matson name changed, right? Jaden's life changed. It's now this direction, right? Because I put a yes on the table here. For some of you, your whole trajectory changed when you said yes to someone who invited you to church once. And from that moment forward, your life, instead of going this direction, went this direction. Right? Moms, ladies, some of you are in here married to a man who asked you out on a date at one point, And that yes that you said led you here to this. Now you're like, what have I done? No, I'm just kidding. But that yes changed the trajectory of your life. Some of you are here with decisions to make, and you don't know what to do. And your temptation is going to be to be like Orpah. To, to make decisions strictly based on practicality on pragmatism, on what makes the most sense to you in that moment based on your situation. But I want to encourage you to make decisions like Ruth. I want to consider how Ruth moves forward. So we continue, Naomi says to Ruth, because Ruth is not budging. Look at verse 15, Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and, and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Right? So now she's piling on the peer pressure. That's a part of decision-making nowadays, right? Well, what is such-and-such such doing? Or they said I should do this. And, and so Naomi's saying, look, take the path of least resistance. Sound familiar? Take the wide path, not the narrow path. Just do what she's doing. But Ruth says, in verse 16, she says, Don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. I find that interesting. Naomi goes from passionately against this idea to silently accepting it. Why? I think probably because Naomi is seeing something at play here that is bigger than just uh, a relationship between two people. She's recognizing that something massive is taking place in this interaction and within Ruth's heart. She recognizes that Ruth is not just trying to support her because it's the culturally proper thing to do anymore. Right? She recognizes Ruth is not just trying to commit herself to Naomi. She wants to commit herself to Naomi's God. Right? She's not just committing to Naomi, but she is becoming one of Naomi's, so to speak. She is becoming a Yahweh worshiper, right? She's identifying with Naomi. This is a moment of conversion. This is a moment of identity shift. This is a moment of faith now. Ruth is not making a decision based on what is practically best for her. She's making a decision based on faith, based on who Yahweh is. All she knows is that she wants to be a worshiper of Yahweh. She wants to move with this God. So her decision is based off of that. Remember a few weeks ago in, in Genesis, we talked about identity calling and directional calling, right? And, and your calling on your life is, is first and foremost based on the fact that God called you to himself. Your identity changed. Everything changed in that moment when God called you to himself. So from there, direction changes. 
your whole life direction, your trajectory changes. You no longer are a person who walks in the ways of the world and uh, follows after the idols of the world. Your tra trajectory is now headed toward the things of God. So identity calling and directional calling change, changes lives. That's what's happening with Ruth. She recognizes that she is no longer defined by her ethnic status or her national status or her marital status. She's defined by God, Yahweh. And so that determines her direction now. See, the decisions that we're facing in our lives right now, both you and I, have to be answered in light of who God is, in light of the reality of eternity, not our temporary circumstances or what is most pragmatic in the moment. To, to personalize it for Mother's Day weekend, moms, parents in general, we have to make decisions and parent out of faith, not fear. We have to, as I prayed a moment ago, resist the temptation to control every aspect of our child's life in an attempt to get them to turn out like so-and-so. Because all that is is a vain attempt to be God. And I love you, I do, but you're not a good God. You're just not, right? Nor am I. But we try so hard. We try so hard to be like Op uh, Orpa, who... who falls back into fear, a place of cultural comfort, a place where everything makes sense, and there is no need for faith and for the things of God. But Ruth, she steps out into the unknown. Church, I believe God wants to do something big with his people in our country in such a time as this. But we have a decision to make. Do we make a decision like Orpah, where, our, where we're determined to fall back into cultural norms that we're so comfortable with and we hold so dearly? Or are we ready to move forward in faith and trust that God is going to do a mighty work? I want to move forward in faith, right? I want to cling to the things of God and let the things of the world fall to the side. So Ruth moves forward. Chapter 2. First you have pain, then you have providence. This is where we see Ruth actually makes the move. She does it. She goes to Bethlehem, where she knows no one, where she's certainly unwelcome. One writer said that there's nothing kosher about Ruth. She was about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. All right, there is nothing uh, good awaiting Ruth in Bethlehem, but she goes. She gets there, and chapter 2 picks up with the scene of her in the fields, uh, gleaning among the, the ears of grain, uh, which you know, in the Old Testament, there's a law in Deuteronomy that tells the, the harvesters, uh, don't, don't harvest the edge of your fields. You know, anything that you drop, just leave it there for the poor and the widow and the sojourner. R Ruth qualifies, right? So that's what she's doing. She's going out to, to basically pick up scraps and to find what she can. Now, just because the law says it doesn't mean that, you know, this male-dominated work context is happy about it. They're not smiling at Ruth, probably. This was more so a dangerous moment for her, to be honest. This is not a situation I'd want my daughter in. There was tension here, no doubt. But she's doing what she's got to do. She's trying to get these scraps and, and probably even thinking, really, I'm walking in faith. I wanted, to, I wanted to move with God. I want to worship Yahweh. And here I am, picking up scraps. But look at verse 3 in chapter 2. She says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Just happened to, to work out that way. Isn't it funny that the author uses that language? Because we know that the Bible doesn't 
preach coincidence, right? Preaches providence. This isn't just luck, right? This isn't just happenstance. What's it, why would she write this, or why would the author write this? So that we'd do what we're doing now. We'd slow down, we'd observe, and we'd chuckle a little bit. Because now we're really, we're seeing God's hand at work behind the scenes. Even though the author's not saying, God did this, God did this, look at this miracle. We're watching him weave together this little interaction in a way that nobody else could. And we're slowing down. We're watching the hand of God at work. Even when he's hidden, he's not absent, right? He's working together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we see that in this interaction, in this meeting. You know, in college, I would, I would hang out um, in the student center because I knew at a certain time of day, Emily would walk through there. Um, this was before we were dating. And, and so I would hang out, and I'd know when she's coming through, and so I'd kind of cross her path a little bit, you know what I mean? And, and to her, it was kind of random. It's like, oh, hey, what's up? You know, to me, and I'm pretending, oh, I, I didn't even know you were here, right? And so just kind of playing it off. But, but the point is, is that she interpreted that as, interpreted that as you know, coincidence, random, every single day of the week. <laughs> um, whereas I obviously was aware, I was actually controlling that situation, right? Because I knew how to, you know, where to be, when to be. In the same way, a lot of times in life, we interpret so many things as random. We write off so many things as meaningless. We, we interpret life as chaotic when really there is the handprint of God all along the way. Now, I think I just made myself God in that illustration, so erase that part. That's bad. But you see my point is that sometimes what we think is random is the, the hand of God at work. And so you can trust that in the mundane. You can trust that uh, in the day-to-day. So the story continues. Ruth and, and Boaz seem to hit it off, and it turns out Boaz is a great guy, man of character. He's a godly man, right? He's, a, he's someone I'd want my daughter to date. Uh, if she were ever allowed to date, which she's not, she's never going to date ever. She's never going to grow up. She's going to be my little princess forever and ever. It's just how it is. But Boaz is a great guy. So Ruth goes home. She tells Naomi, she says, I met this guy. And she says, okay, tell me about him. What's he like? Right? And she says, his name's Boaz. And, and Naomi says, Boaz, I know him. He's a, he's a family redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. Right? So in that culture, a kinsman redeemer was somebody who could continue the family line if one of the males died. Remember, Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech has died. So uh, not only does Ruth meet Boaz, but she meets one of the very few people in all the land who can redeem this family situation. So the story continues. They uh, progress through the talking phase of the relationship pretty quickly. I wrote, you know, for chapter one, pain, uh, chapter two, providence, and I wrote promiscuity in chapter three. Now, if you know the story, you realize Ruth's not one to act slowly. She makes rather aggressive move on Boaz, uh, rather unapologetically advances on Boaz, to which he says, no, no, no. Right? He doesn't seize the, the moment. He, he steps back. He says, no, actually, there's another family redeemer in front of me. We need to talk to him. Right? Boaz is a great guy. So he goes, they, they find this redeemer, this family redeemer in chapter 4. Look at verse 3 in chapter 4. And we'll, we'll end it here in a minute. It says, Boaz says to this guy, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and, 
in the presence of the elders of my people? If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you'll not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And he said, ah, verse 6, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So now it's back to Boaz. You get to Boaz and you see a picture of what's coming, right? It's what's so amazing about the Bible. In this seemingly random, seemingly insignificant story, Boaz comes, redeems the family line, and gives us a picture of the ultimate redeemer to come. Boaz is doing what others are unwilling to do. Enter into the inconvenient. Come into the, the mess. Come into the unconventional. He's willing to do what the others would not do. He's willing to bear the shame, the cultural shame. He's willing to let his reputation uh, be destroyed for the sake of this Moabite woman. So then, go back to verse 13 of chapter 4, where we originally started. I want you to read it again. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Read it in light of what we've just seen and how God has worked. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. This is the second, and the second time that God is mentioned. The first was in the beginning when the Lord gave food. The next is at the end when the Lord gave a son. But everything in between, you don't see obvious signs of God even though it is crystal clear, right? That's life. That is the, the daily progression of our lives. We don't always have writing in the sky. We don't always have the neon signs. But when we look at the life of Ruth, we can trust that God is behind the scenes working. He plays in both arenas. The one that is big with the big stage and miracles happen, but he's also a God who invests personally in our mundane lives. So it says, verse 14, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And that's the point. What started off as tragic, what seemed random, what looked like the absence of God was actually the hand of God at work accomplishing his purposes, continuing the promise of a Savior. I hope you leave encouraged tonight. I hope you leave knowing that because you're at a place in life and it's just not where you expected to be. You didn't think life would turn out the way that it did. Or, or you're, you're, you're not seeing God show up in ways that you want him to show up. You can look at a story like Ruth and you can trust that he's a God who even if he seems hidden, he's not absent. Right? He's a God who works in the miraculous, but he also moves in the mundane. He's involved in all of that. I want to leave you with the question, though. Are you acting and making decisions more like Orpah? 
or Ruth. Church, let's walk like Ruth did. Looking at a situation that didn't really make much sense, but all she knew was she wanted to move with God. She didn't want Naomi. She wanted to be with Naomi and her people as Yahweh worshipers. Let's move forward in faith. Right? Let's move forward as a people who the world looks at and says, they're crazy. Crazy for the right reasons, though. Right? We're a people not of this world. We're a people who walk by faith, not by sight. All right, church, let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that, um, Lord, you, you aren't a God who just spends time with the important people. You're not just a God who, um, who's hard to access because you're great and mighty. Lord, even the lowly you invite to your table. Lord, forgive us of thinking that because you're powerful, you're... you're you're hard to talk to. Lord, you are the most powerful. You are the creator, but yet you want a relationship with us. Lord, would you soften our hearts tonight to, to be able to see how beautiful that is and to see, God, that even though we're not worthy, you still accept us because of Christ Jesus. So, Father, I pray that for those in here who don't know Jesus as Savior, that they would, uh, that they would see their need for him that they would confess their sin, that they would repent, and they'd place their faith in him. Lord, I pray that you would tear down walls tonight and break chains. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bring the dead to life. Lord, we trust you to do big things because you're a big God. And we also trust that you do small things that we don't even see that continue to accomplish your plan, and we thank you for that. Help us to continue trusting you every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.